0: We have two questions here. I'd like to start with this. How does someone take the precepts? Brackets, nice, easy one. (laughs) First of all, how does someone, do you mean someone, and we're all practicing to let go of being anyone, if we're looking at the emptiness, there's no one there, then how can anyone take the precepts? (laughs) (laughs) how do we take the precepts? Well, it's an intention. You make an intention that you want to follow a particular path. Like when you go to your car or you go down to the bus stop and you wait there to get on a bus, you know that you're going in a certain direction. You've made the intention to go to a particular place on that trajectory, and you get in the vehicle, whichever vehicle it is, you get in it, and you stay in it until you arrive. So taking the precepts is like getting into the vehicle and staying in it until you arrive. Does this make sense? So it's a commitment. It means you make an, a strong determination, a strong intention. These precepts are, like I mentioned, holding on to a guardrail, um, going on an escalator and holding on to that moving piece of rubber, steel, until you get to the bottom or the top. Then you step out and you don't have that rail. But you don't need it because you're not on a moving stairway with your clothing, flapping in the, the teeth of the thing. But in fact, without precepts, the world is biting us all the time. So we're in danger of being bitten. And hold to those precepts, we commit to them, we stay in the vehicle of virtue. So this is how we step onto the chariot to Nibbāna, the chariot the freedom not a cell phone, it's a different kind of vehicle, it's not, because a cell phone is a mobile, but it doesn't move, it's just in your hand. But this is a moving vehicle that takes us away from just technical connection, it takes us internally into a deep interior connection to truth. And the truth begins to flower in us through our own willingness to give up all disingenuity for the sake of integrity. And we have to study what condition we're in, what kind of behaviors we give vent to, what kind of speech and language we use internally and externally that prevents us from protecting our integrity. And we give those up. Once we're in this vehicle, we drive away from those ways of interacting, behaving, speaking, receiving, giving to the world, to ourselves. We try to bring integrity foremost in our minds as the arrow that directs us, as the guardrail that holds us upright. and as the the system of protection. So to take the precepts, you do have to understand what you're getting into and make a firm commitment to it and not let the worldly winds knock you off balance or talk you into abandoning that vehicle or compromising it in any way. When the vehicle is on a rocky path, Uneven surface and starts bouncing and gyrating and being thrown off track. Maybe you need a witness that you can refer back to. I'll give you an example. Some years ago, I was living in New Zealand and I was a solitary nun living in a small studio in the most beautiful place, actually, most beautiful area. There was a a national park, there were people nearby who could feed me, and the ocean was a three minute walk. I, I could hear the waves, I could see the sea, and the sky, the sunsets. It was really quite spectacular. However, people didn't always show up with food, and it was a very uneven path for me To get fed. And of course, as an almsman, that's the nature of our life, is that you're dependent on the kindness of other people. So I struggled quite a bit for some time before enough supporters gathered round to offer meals regularly. And there was one point where I really did not receive enough And I had a crisis of of faith, a crisis of, can I do this? And the one thing that helped me through that was remembering that I had taken a lifetime vow. I took lifetime vows. I didn't take one-year vows, 10-year vows, 20-year vows. I took these vows for life. And when I was sitting in front of my shrine, Tears rolling down my cheeks, looking at the Buddha statue and believing my mind, the wavering of my mind. I'm hungry. and mm-hmm. The complaining and the fretting and the agitation and the worry, I can't do this. And then suddenly, my mind stopped at the vow and something inside me rose up and said, I have no other choice. I made a vow to a teacher, not to myself. I did make it to myself, but having taken that vow with a great master, with a teacher that I had given all my trust to, that moment rose up very strongly in my heart, and I dried my eyes and sat in front of the shrine and thought, of course I could do Nowhere else, nothing else to do but this. So I realized, I'm not that hungry. Tomorrow somebody will come, sure enough, next day I had a very nice meal. But I was on the brink of convincing myself that I couldn't do it. So the mind is not trustworthy. But if we have a witness who has sat with us when we've made that determination, and then we can refer back to that reference point. It's amazing how it can rise up to strengthen us. That has been imprinted deeply in consciousness. And in a moment of need, it will be there. So I think there's something to be said for taking the precepts with a preceptor that you respect and love and trust, and that is there for you as a spiritual ally and a spiritual guardian who will encourage you from long distance or nearby, from a memory, from an email, phone call. Yeah, of course you can do it. And you will. Because we are much stronger than we think we are. If we trust our thoughts, we will just keel over, dissolve and collapse. But if we trust our intuitive heart, that we can do anything. Absolutely. The most heroic thing imaginable. What can a mother do for her child? What can a father do for a son or daughter, a parent, to rescue them from a fire, from danger, from self-destruction? Anything. They would do anything. Lay down their life to rescue same way we can do that for ourselves. Because the one being that we have to cherish the most in this world is ourselves. And we don't do this out of selfishness. It's not a self-cherishing, in inverted commas. It's not a selfishness. It's a selflessness. It's the wish to purify ourselves so that we can be available to help all sentient beings find their way to the path of truth instead of be lost in the world. I remember sitting in the monastery in Burma, loving this teaching so much, having taken these lifetime vows, wishing that my brother would show up. Oh, yeah, any day he's going to come with his backpack, he'll come and he'll want to be a monk. Of course, he never showed up. But I kept wishing that all the people that I loved, my parents, my brother, my friends, would come and join me and do this. They didn't. But they did help me. They supported me. They cheered me on. They gave me respect. And not the way the world, at the beginning, 31 years ago, pretty odd walking around in sheets with a bald head not so well-known. It's much easier now. People, Everyone probably knows about the Dalai Lama. And mindfulness has become mainstream. So we can endure if we have that kind of fierce determination and we're fighting for giving our lives for surrendering everything for something that we love so much that we know is the highest. That alone will give us the strength to take precepts and keep them in the face of any challenge, even mockery. People will mock you, abandon you, so what? What kind of friends are they? They are not true friends if they mock that which is worthy of respect. And we have to notice that, make that kind of inner choice, based on our own wisdom. If it doesn't happen right away, in due course, we build that kind of inner resilience and strength to face criticism and lack of acceptance from people that we formerly depended upon for self-esteem. But when we develop a lot of virtue, we begin to have a high self-esteem, a high regard for that virtue that we're protecting and upholding. That becomes the precious jewels of our own heart. We want to guard those, protect them, and bring them out into the light. That's what's in front, the virtue. And on that we build. Precepts, it's the foundation. There are two questions here. Who asked the questions? Anyone? No one. <laughs> They're empty. <laughs> Sometimes it feels like there's awareness of breath, but with a lens of aversion, especially when having trouble feeling the outbreath. How can I bring back and know that I am bringing the pure impartial awareness? If we have pure impartial awareness, we just have to be with the object, just devote ourselves fully to what is arising in consciousness, and not be divided in our attention, and not half looking at the thoughts and half looking at the breath, but totally look at one object at a time. Because you can't be fully mindful if you have two objects, you need to have one. This is what one-pointed means. It means to have one direction. If we're headed towards Nibbana, but we get distracted because we want to go on a trip to Mars, some people are planning their trip to Mars. This is pure distraction. Why would anybody want to go to Mars? Sorry. (laughs) This is total delusion. The only place to really go is in. We can really focus devoting ourselves to being here in the present moment. Being in this world, in this age, in this day and age, just the way things are, to use all the factors, of all the conditions of how things are on this planet, Without any aversion to that. In other words, the real way to freedom from attachment to conditions being perfect is to notice our aversion to all the imperfection, to be aware, of it, to admit it, to understand how much ill will we have towards ourselves, and it can start with the body. We don't like the body condition; it's too heavy, it's too big, it's too old, it's too dark, it's too light. You can hate your hearing ability, your mental ability. There's so many ways that we can be self-critical. It's almost like we take photographs of all those critical aspects of ourselves, and then we build this gigantic self. This is the self that we really don't like. Then we sit down, we want to pay attention to the breath inside this self that we really don't like. So we have an underlying panorama of aversion going on. But we're going to hold the breath without aversion, right? Wrong. There's so much ill will in there that is manifesting through our present moment awareness. Because until we're aware of our mental condition, until we're able to some of that ill will, then it'd be very difficult to hold a moment of observing the breath without some kind of contraction in the body, without some kind of tightness, without some kind of bent up kneeling Verse. So, how do we come to terms with aversion? It's just see what's the result of having so much aversion. Well, first we have to be aware of it. When we're aware of it, that's the beginning of the ending of aversion. We have to trust that. First, to be aware of it, acknowledge it, and see that it's suffering. It's not me, it's not mine. It's just a condition, it's developed over years, and years, and years. You want to bake a cake, a small kitchen example. You get all these ingredients together, and you stir all them together. You heat up the oven, you put it in the oven, you turn on the heat, or you've already heated it up. You sit and watch. And the cake rises, you take it out, and it falls. You feel like a failure can't even bake a cake. But if we review how we did it, and we look at the recipe, how do you bake the cake, and we forgot the baking powder, or we forgot a certain ingredient, aha. Uh-huh. So you start over. You take all your ingredients, you measure them carefully. You mix carefully. You turn your oven on to the right temperature. You set the timer the cake in the oven, you wait, it bakes, it's ready. You take it out at the right moment, you let it sit in the right way, and it doesn't fall in, it stays. It stays, it's risen and it stays. You eat it, and it's delicious. Why? Because we try it again. At first, at first, it doesn't succeed. We try, we try, again and again. So we see the aversion, we notice it, we want to let it go. We can't. We look at the breath, we're aware of aversion. We give ourselves to the breath, letting go the aversion and knowing, not me, not mine. We see the breath clear, crystal clear, no aversion. And then suddenly the aversion is back. What did I do wrong? Nothing. We just have to keep trying, again and again, until we can sweep away any ill will from the heart and give ourselves fully to the present moment without any sense of hating, disliking, discontent, but we're bringing, learning to bring up gratitude, loving kindness towards ourselves and others, compassion for this being, instead of aversion. So we're setting the right temperature. We're creating the conditions for the breath to be able to rise up and stay. We're creating the conditions to be able to stay with the breath, to stay present, to have enough sense of appreciation and gratitude for what we have, for how this body-mind process composite is exactly as it is without wanting it to be any different. And then, we're able to stay and be within the temple of the heart. And the results are delicious, they're beautiful. A sense of peace, a sense of ease, a sense of having done it right. And we review and see, oh, that works. Just follow the instructions, it works. We can't solve all our past karma, all our predicament, in one breath, or in one sitting, or in one retreat, or in one year, or in one lifetime maybe. Maybe it takes lifetimes. But it doesn't matter. Because in the end, if we follow the instructions and we trust the path, and we use our best effort, and we take precepts and keep them, So our mindfulness, our wisdom, our sense of urgency, our diligence, we don't give vent to aversion. Maybe it continues to come up, but we're aware as soon as it arises, we nip it in the bud. If you're a gardener and you're growing a garden, when you see little aphids or little hungry insects, eating up your plants, your veggies, whatever you're growing. You remove them. You take them away. You give your flowers, your veggies, the right conditions. You surround them with a little net, so the deer won't come and gobble them up, or the rabbits won't eat them up. You protect them. You nurture them just like a parent guards, nurtures, and feeds its child with all your strength and all your mindfulness and all your attention. So mindfulness and attention are perfected through this committed, diligent, right effort of abandoning what doesn't support us and putting in the conditions for upholding that which does support us. Developing what supports us and keeping out what doesn't support us. Those are the four right elements. And then the result is that the mind becomes concentrated with the factors of enlightenment, rather than with the five hindrances. This is how we develop on the path. This is a beautiful question. How do we extend genuine compassion for others' suffering without finding ourselves in a constant state of tears and anguish? How can the Dhamma help with compassion fatigue? There's no such thing as compassion fatigue, really. True compassion is unconditional. True compassion is tireless, fearless, unrelenting. However, we practice on ourselves, and first, before we can develop that kind of unconditional compassion, we have to notice the quality of emptiness in this body-mind process. So when suffering arises, when there's aversion, when there's ill-will towards ourselves or anyone else, or even towards an object, and we develop enough awareness, to know the difference between that activity in the mind that is transpiring and our awareness of it, that is our fortitude, that is our strength, that's our protection. Why? Because we see, I am not my thoughts. I am not the activities of the mind. There is activity in the mind, there are for mental formations, we call them sankhara, or activities that prepare for the intentions and desires that will drive us into other external activity. So we see the condition, the weather of the mind as not me, not mine, not what this is. There is no person, there is no one, ultimately. We use this language, who are you, what am I? I'm someone who can take precepts, for example. But that's a convention. That's just to help us function in this world. But on an ultimate level, who are we? Just like a composite of elements, earth element, water element, fire element, air element, and consciousness. And this composite is a vehicle for spiritual development. We think it's a vehicle for sense gratification, S-G, but it's a vehicle for spiritual development, S-D. So are you investing in S-G or in S-D? This is where it's very different. S-D, spiritual development, is self-dissolving. Self-dissolving. There's emptiness. So who is suffering? If we really believe, if we, it's not a belief. When you penetrate deeply into the nature of phenomena arising in the mind, what do you see? Nothing is permanent. Nothing that arises there is permanent. It comes and it goes. It arises, it's there for a while, it's gone. Can you bring it back? No. Well, you can think about it again, but it's not the same. Is any moment the same now as what was this morning? Is it the same? No. How come we can know this, but then we believe that what we're seeing in the mirror is the same? What we're looking, like, I'm looking at all of you, are all of you the same as what you were at 2.30? No. What's different? Well, the mind state is different. The cellular, molecular, atomic composite of the body is different. The neurons passing through have changed. The electrical energies have aged by half an hour. It's different. We're different. It's never the same, but we take it to be, we construct all of this as the same. And we don't believe that we're dissolving, dying. We believe that we're all permanent. This is wrong view. As long as we have wrong view, we keep on committed to and believing in sense gratification. That this whole trajectory of life is for the purpose of squeezing as much pleasure out of the world as we can, and avoiding as much pain as we can. So it's SPPA, sense pleasure, pain avoidance. That's what we're doing, but this is so deluded. Instead, we can do spiritual development, SDSD, sense dissolving, self dissolve, self destruction. Destroying that false view that this is who I am, this body. Then, when suffering strikes, who suffers? You can see this is not my suffering. This sadness, this sorrow, this investment in grief, investment in anger. How much mental energy have we spent being angry at ourselves or someone else? A little bit? Just a tiny bit? Can anyone say just a little bit? Bless your heart, Ariel, you're advanced. <laughs> Take you home. An advanced being. But it, even a little bit, this is wrong view. Because anger, there's no one to be angry. This is a wrong way of using this precious instrument, our mind, is precious. And the energy of anger is far from the food for awakening. It's an obstacle to awakening. So we must not harbor ill will. And that's a very difficult thing to accomplish. So if there's any kind of ill will or lack of benevolence in our mental disposition, then our ability to be aware of the present moment is clouded. It's not pure, it's not clear. Then that gives rise to a self. The self is the obstacle. We're back in the world, back in the SG. Delusion is not the way out. Then how can we have compassion for ourselves if we don't see how quickly suffering lands and Occupies. It's an illegal occupation. It's like a war zone. We want peace, but we're allowing war within our own minds. We're at war with the present moment because we're angry. Whether it's at ourselves, at conditions, how could this happen? How could life do this to me? We have to understand the law of karma and cause effect. Once we begin to understand the conditionality of how things arising in the mind arise and then how they disappear based on cause-effects, based on the causes and conditions that we put into the mind to dissolve anger, dissolve it, rid ourselves of it, and purify it. Then when we are trying to develop compassion, we can do that to ourselves in a way that understands the law of karma and sees the beginning, the middle of the ending of anger. We try to end it. And in its place, we bring up loving kindness and we try to grow it, perfect it, consummate it. We do need spiritual friends. But we have whatever we need, whatever the state of our minds, even if we're losing it, we're still aware that we're losing it. So practicing compassion becomes the most exalted mind state that we can preserve. But it's based on a way of balancing the enlightenment factors, balancing them within us. And once we can do that in our own minds, we're able to hold Compassion for other beings suffering without falling apart. That is a skill to develop, and the way to develop is to grow ourselves, to mature ourselves, as one of you said so beautifully, to marinate in the Dhamma. We get marinated, but
1: pickled. It takes
0: time to make pickles, doesn't it?